So as Gary mentioned this morning, we are in our series called Nine Conversations, and we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Luke today, a conversation that Jesus has with a legion of demons, um, and it's an interesting conversation. Sometimes when I try to write a sermon, things start to go wrong. Uh, I get a flat tire, my arthritis acts up, my husband has to go unexpectedly on a trip, Ember gets sick. This last round, we actually had uh, an infestation of flies because some trash had fallen behind our trash can that we didn't see for a little while. So there was literally a plague of flies on my household. Um, here's an actual text message between me and Rob that week. He was, he was actually on a trip. Rob texts, how's it going? And I respond, well, after Ember had a meltdown because the TV didn't work this morning, I discovered that Ramsey's, our dog, had puked on the carpet twice. Ember kindly informed me this was because of all that paper he ate in the yard. Apparently the raccoons had gotten into our trash and scattered it about. And I'm eating a chocolate bar for breakfast. P.S. I miss trash pickup. I'm sorry. I love you. And do you know, do you know what I discovered? Do you know the force that I discovered was behind all of these challenges? Demons. No, I'm just kidding. It's not. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, but... If you're a Christian, in all seriousness, if you're a Christian, it should no longer surprise you that the minute we set about doing the work that God has for us, we are met with diversions and obstacles and challenges and conflicts. This this should not surprise us because it's, it's not a coincidence. It's not karma. It's not punishment. It's just good strategy because there is such a thing as the evil one and he is at odds with God and with man. And because my husband is a wonderful human being, sometimes when I get a little behind in my sermon prep, either because of circumstances like that or just because we're in a season where life is just so full, uh, when I get behind, he will on occasion use some of his airline miles to put me up in a hotel for a night or two so I can do uninterrupted, uh, uninterrupted reading and writing for a couple of days. Um, and, when, and anytime he does this and I, and, and I leave, I walk out the door to go to this little study retreat, he always says, have fun, and I want to yell back, it's, it's not fun, it's work. But who am I kidding? I mean, it is fun. Anyone who has a small child knows that doing hours of uninterrupted work is glory upon glories. I I don't care how hard you're working. No one is crying or asking you for a juice box, and that is really something. So there were two books I wanted to read in addition to the commentaries I wanted to look at uh, for this uh, sermon. And so I was grateful when Rob offered to put me up in a hotel. This seemed like a great idea. It seemed like a great plan until I got to the hotel and I realized that we had essentially made a plan to send me away for two days to read about demons alone in the dark. This was a terrible, <laughs> terrible plan. I can't even go to the movies in October because of the trailers. You know, you, you go, you show up to watch Sherlock Gnomes, but they won't show it to you until you've watched the trailer for Bride of Chucky. Like, why do they do that? So before we get into this conversation between Jesus and a legion of demons, I think it's best that we start just with some basic theology so that my sermon doesn't keep you up at night too. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So all things were made through Jesus Christ. Satan is a created being. He was something that was made, and therefore he is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So, so Lucifer, again, was a created being, and he was therefore created good. But we know from 1 Timothy 3 that the devil's sin was pride, and as a result of that pride, that desire to be like God, he fell. Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
So Satan, who can't get to God, comes for us, God's beloved, and he tempts us, and we fall as well. 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus died and rose again, the devil and sin and death were defeated. Ephesians 2. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So, so the devil is defeated, but he is still active in the here and now. And then finally, Revelation 20. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the devil's defeated but he is still active in the present and he will be active until the time when Jesus comes back, when he returns to judge the living and the dead and Satan and his demons will be thrown into the eternal fire. And I tell you this to make clear this very, very important point. Evil is finite. It had a beginning and it will have an end. Jesus has already won the victory over the evil one. The devil has been defeated, but he still thrashes about in the throes of his death like a wounded animal and perhaps becomes even more violent and dangerous as he sees his end approaching. So, so while we need not live in fear of the evil one, we would be wise to understand what his tactics are, to be aware of his strategies. It's important for us not, not to have an unhealthy preoccupation with the realm of the demonic, but, but it's wisdom to understand what we are up against. So we'll look at the text. We're in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. It's in your bulletin. You can read along or just listen as I read. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened... They ran off and reported this in the town in the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. This is God's word. So let's deal with what I assume are your most important and pressing questions first. Can animals be possessed by the devil? Jesus uh, cast demons into the pigs, so does that mean my cat freckles can actually be the spawn of Satan. I don't know. You know, the, the truth is we don't know. I think cats give off that impression just by being themselves. 
Um, but, but the answer is we don't know. We can't really answer that except to say in this instance, the te text would suggest that here on this occasion, they were possessed. But, but this is descriptive, not prescriptive, which means it only means they can be possessed if, if Jesus commands it. Um, and, and donkeys can also talk if God commands it, but I only know one time that that has happened. Um, so we would do well not to focus on questions the text doesn't actually try to answer. Probably a more important question is, can Christians be possessed? I think not. I'm persuaded by scripture and by the scholars that I've read that once Jesus makes his home in us, there is simply no room for anybody else. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That does not mean that the devil will not employ other strategies, one of which I think may very well be to, to persuade us to disbelieve in his existence. We cannot fight what we will not see and we become easier prey when we don't know what we're up against. Do you, do you believe in the devil? Even sometimes pop culture gives us a glimpse into good theology. Constantine said, uh, not the Roman emperor, the 2005 Keanu Reeves version. Constantine said, you should believe in the devil because he believes in you. In The Usual Suspects, Roger says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist. Do you believe in the devil? You may not believe in the supernatural. I met, I've met Christians who don't believe in hell, but, but a right reading of this text requires at a minimum that we acknowledge that Jesus believed in the realm of the demonic. Theologian John Caird writes, ancient opinion ascribed to demon possession any disease which involved loss of control, epilepsy, delirium, convulsions, nervous disorders, mental derangement, and which therefore suggested the presence of an invading power. Modern medicine can provide other explanations for most of the symptoms, but this does not mean that demon possession can be dismissed as outmoded science. To Jesus, all diseases, diseases were caused by Satan, though not all by possession, so that with each of his cures, he was driving further back the frontier of Satan's dominion. We find this hard to accept as modern people, of course, because we no longer call it miracles, we call it medicine, and, and there is both truth and folly in that. The truth is, of course, that the medicine works, but the, the folly is that the idea that we invented it. At best, we've only discovered it. And if we conclude that, that the devil is no longer at work in supernatural ways among us, we have lost some footing in our battle against, against him. Scriptures tell us plainly, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You're not just up against your own fallen nature. You're not just up against the greed of greedy men, the selfishness of all people. There's something more. Do you, do you believe that there are spiritual forces at work in the heavenly realm? Listen, you, you can be a good scientist and still believe in God. I don't think that you can disprove the existence of God by understanding the existence of science. Who made the laws that the universe obeys? Was it no one? Does that not take just as much faith to believe as someone? Even Aristotle himself, one of the fathers of logic, could not explain the existence of anything without what he called the unmoved movers, the, the, the forces that began all movement but were themselves not moved by anything. If you, if you trace a thing back far enough, even if you're the brightest mind in the world, you will come to a dilemma that science cannot resolve. There are things that, even for the unreligious, must still be taken on faith. So a little context for this passage. 
we find Jesus sailing into what is essentially Gentile territory. That region east of the Jordan, east of the Sea of Galilee was, was more Greek than Jewish at this point, which is evidenced by the, the, the pig herd. Pigs were unclean animals for the Jews. And this man he meets manifests a slew of the indicators of demon possession, living in isolation, nudity, shouting, seizures, extraordinary strength, and, and of course, recognition of Jesus as the Son of God. And the text tells us that this, this man had broken the chains that had bound him hand and foot, and he had been driven by the demon into solitary places. In this story, he's living among the tombs. And we hear in, other, uh, in the other versions, we see that he's also been cutting himself with rocks. And the first question that Jesus asks this creature is, what is your name? Now, there, uh, there was a belief in some ancient rabbinic tradition that, that knowing, uh, when, when exorcism was practiced, it was thought that there was power in knowing the name of the demon that you were trying to exorcise. If you knew his name, you had, would have more power to command him out. But this is Jesus. This is Jesus who, who already, we know from scripture, already has all authority. All things in heaven and earth are under his authority, and he would certainly have no need for tricks or stratagems to cast out this demon or this group of demons, as it were. So why would he ask for this man's name? So in the commentaries I looked at, there seemed to be two possibilities for why this was so. First, it may simply have been to demonstrate to the disciples the serious nature of the situation. This was a very serious thing. The demon replies, my name is Legion, which, which is a military term that indicates a, a force of thousands. He says in the Mark passage, my name is Legion for we are many. And, and so there's certainly merit in that, in that idea. Jesus is making a demonstration of his authority. And so for the disciples to see that he can subdue a force of superior numbers would certainly prove the point. But the other possibility was this. One of the commentators wrote that Jesus asks the man's name to reawaken his humanity, to draw out his personality from the thing that had taken over, to call out to the soul that existed before and certainly still exists separately from the monster that was now squatting in his body. What is your name? He says, perhaps to reach into the mess and to draw out the man. Do you ever have a nickname? When I was growing up, uh, I had a couple of them. My grandfather called me Nuck, which was short for knucklehead, which from him was uh, certainly a term of endearment. And my brother, uh, among other terrible things, would on occasion call me Bucky the Bucktooth Bandit. He had like a real flair for alliteration. So I had, um, when I was growing up, I had uh, my, one of my front teeth pointed uh, nearly horizontally out of my mouth as if to indicate the person to whom I was speaking at any given time. Uh, and, and, and we were too poor to, uh, to afford braces, so I was stuck with it. I hated that tooth. Um, but in middle school, I experienced this very happy accident. This was circa the 1990s when Terminator 2 Judgment Day was wildly popular. And uh, if you've ever seen the movie, the first scene is a close-up of Linda Hamilton, who plays Sarah Connor, and she's doing these just intense pull-ups on this pull-up bar. And I remember watching that scene, and, and she immediately became my very first superhero. I wanted to do pull-ups like Sarah Connor. And so I got myself a pull-up bar, uh, one of those tension ones that you adjust between a doorway. Uh, problem was, I am a delicate flower, and I'd never done a pull-up in my life, and I wasn't strong enough to even twist the bar so that it could bear my weight. So I jump up on it and the bar gives and I fall flat on my back and the bar comes crashing down right onto my big, ugly, horizontal tooth. Cracked it clean in half. But when I went to the dentist to get it repaired, to my utter delight, he affixed the, the, the bonding so that it went 
straight down. It, it went down instead of pointing outward. It was like magic. My buck tooth was fixed overnight. And I went home and I proudly displayed my new magical smile to my terrible brother. And, and he looks at me, he looks at my tooth, he looks back at me, and he goes, you'll always be Bucky to me. And you know what? I, I still can't look at this tooth without seeing what used to be. I mean, I know cognitively that my tooth does not point at people anymore, but still there's, there's still power in that name over me. Names are powerful. Jesus asks, what is your name? Perhaps to recall to the man that he is still a separate entity from his tormentor. His name was not Legion. Legion. Legion was the squatter. The man's name is something different. His name was not evil. His name was not murderer. His name was not liar. What evil had done in him does not define who he is. Nor does it define who we are. Our sins do not define us. No matter what you've done, your name is not liar or cheater or failure, or used goods. You are not the sum of your bad decisions. You are not defined by them. When you crossed the line of faith, you became clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Those names are no longer what is most true about you. That is not your name. Verse 31, legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged repeatedly not, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. This is the only use of the word abyss in the Gospels. Um, it can also be translated underworld. In the Old Testament, it was used to describe uh, the depths of the earth or of the sea, and here it's used to describe the final judgment place of demons. And what's fascinating about this to me is, is that even the demons know and understand that their time is coming. In the Mark passage, they say, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They know it's coming. They accept it. They bow down before the authority of Jesus, even if they despise him for it. They don't imagine a scenario where they win. Demons are not optimistic creatures. Evil is finite. It has a beginning and it has an ending. And even evil itself knows that its ending is drawing near. Evil cannot win. But here's the cunning of our enemy. If he cannot win you, he is content to damage you instead. One of the most effective strategies of our enemy is to convince us that God is not really good, that he does not really love us. And, and I believe that hardship, hardship is often the way that he makes his case. Because even as Christians, we can know that the devil has lost the war. We can know that Satan is bound. We can know all this. And yet in the midst of our pain, we can feel as though none of it actually matters because I can't find work and we can't make rent because I lost a child because I don't know a day without chronic pain. This is very real, very serious suffering. And in the midst of it, we can begin to feel like the binding of the enemy is not so much unbelievable as it is simply irrelevant to our lives. 
and we don't care that Jesus wins because his winning doesn't feel that much different than losing, the enemy dangles this carrot of happiness in front of us and says, if he doesn't give you this, how can he call it love? Listen, our enemy is trying to damage what he knows he cannot own. Don't let him add to your suffering the impotence of despair. He, he dangled that same carrot in front of Jesus himself. He offered him the kingdom without the cross. He said, if God is really your father, if he really loves you, he'll protect you. He won't let one of your bones be broken. He offered him every earthly comfort and happiness there was. And if that's what God called love, then none of us would have any hope. All of us would perish in our sin. The absence of pain is not an accurate measure of the love of God. If that were true, then Jesus could never have gone to the cross. What God called love is written forever on his hands, and, and no one who sees it could call it anything else. Don't let the enemy who has already made us to suffer so much, don't let him use that suffering in his own defense. Don't forget where the pain began. And don't forget how the end of it was purchased. Verse 34. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had got out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerizines asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. Recently, I, I ordered some new bath toys for my daughter, ones that cannot actually hold water inside of them because it, it, like, it doesn't matter how vigorously you squeeze the rubber duck, there's always still water in there, and then it gets gross and black. So these new toys came in the mail from Amazon, and I made the mistake of, of opening them in front of her at like, 10 in the morning, and she's like, hey, can, can I get a bath now, mommy? And I was like, babe, you're gonna have to wait. We're gonna take a bath the normal time before dinner. And she's like, but I wanna play with my new bath toys. And I was like, baby, I need you to be patient, okay? Can you, can you just be patient for mommy? Yeah, I can be patient. So she runs upstairs to play with all of her other million toys. And maybe two minutes goes by, and then I hear, oh, no! And she comes running down the stairs and she says, mommy, mommy, I had an accident. Now she is almost, but not quite potty trained. Like we have, we've had weeks now with no accidents. It's been really exciting. So, so I was a little surprised, but I'll tell you what, what really made me suspect that there was treachery afoot <laughs> was her sheer enthusiasm about having had an accident. Ordinarily, she'd be horrified. She'd come down crying because she'd have to take off whatever extravagant princess dress her grandparents had given her that she was wearing around the house all weekend. So this time, not only is she not embarrassed, she is downright effervescent about her little pee spree. Mommy, I had an accident. Come upstairs, I'll show you. So I look at her, and I get down on one of my knees, and I look her in the eyes, and I said, babe, did you have an accident on purpose? And she's like, And I say, babe, did, did you have an accident so that you could get a bath? And she's like. She's a brilliant little schemer, I'll give her that. Sometimes we get so preoccupied with something good, we, we lose track of what's actually best. My sweet girl was willing to sit in her own filth for the sake of bath toys. And now I love a bath toy just as much as the next person, okay? But if you make me choose between that and bladder control, that's an easy, that's an easy one. Sometimes we find ourselves concerned with with all the wrong things. 
these people here are concerned with the swine. In the Mark passage, we learn that the herd was about 2,000. So, so of course, this is their livelihood. This is their security. For Romans and other Gentiles, the, the pig was a, was a sacred animal. It was, it was sacrificed to the gods. It was consumed in sacred meals. So these animals were precious to them. And the loss of them was costly. So, so costly, in fact, that perhaps it's, it's their fear of further material loss that, that causes them to beg Jesus to leave. For the herdsmen, who are no longer afraid of the wild man, Jesus' presence could only mean more loss, and it could mean nearness to an uncomfortable power they did not understand. They were more comfortable in the presence of evil simply because they had been accustomed to its noise and its violence. I think, I think all of us are in danger of becoming desensitized to the evil that's near to us until its hideous strength is no longer even frightening. What, what's the evil in your life that you've become so comfortable with you forget that it could ruin you? Like a naive child who has tread so near the precipice all of his life and forgets that the first step may actually be the last. These people are more comfortable in the presence of the wild man than they are in the presence of the holy man because, because evil has only inconvenienced them. It's only blocked their road with a madman, but the madman himself is being torn to pieces. And Jesus could have cast the demons into the abyss. He could have cast them anywhere, but he chooses to cast them into this herd, this precious herd, which then perished with the demons upon them. Why? I, I think among other things, Jesus is challenging us with a question. Are our pigs more important to us than our brothers? There are people in the world right now, all around us, who don't know where hope is found. They don't know Jesus. And maybe they've been driven off to live in solitary places all alone. What have we withheld from him that seems too precious to risk inviting them into his grace? Are there comforts with which we are so consumed that we would not risk them to rescue one whom evil tears to pieces. We don't know for certain why Jesus used the pigs. I think it may have been to challenge us, but there is also something even more in this story. There is something very reminiscent in this story to, to another one, to another very costly loss. Because Jesus, on the cross, took all of our demons onto himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He took all of our sins upon him and he perished so that we might live. And to the Father, the Son was more precious than every creature ever made, more costly than any loss. And yet here's the thing, he would have done no less if it had been for only one man, even the vilest man, even a man among the pigs. Jesus did not find death too costly a price to pay for us. Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. There are a lot of things going on in this story. It's, it's an exorcism and then it turns into a missionary story. And, and I think there's something interesting even there. Not all missionaries are meant to leave. Some of us are meant to stay. God invites all of us to spread the word of his good news in, in our own sphere of influence right where we are. 
but that's a story for another day. Um, that this man goes back to his hometown. He, he uh, proclaims all that Jesus had done for him. But, but at its core, at its core, in its essence, this story is about the authority of Jesus Christ over all things. Theologian Eugene Boring, and by the way, uh, I will never buy my own copy of Eugene Boring's commentary on Mark because every time I borrow Gary's, I get to give it back with a note that says, thanks for the boring commentary. That joke will never get old for me. So <laughs> theologian Eugene Boring writes, this is not a story about the response of faith and its transforming power, but about an invasion of alien territory and reclaiming it for the kingdom of God. This story is about the authority of Jesus. This, this passage occurs in all three synoptic gospels in tandem with two other stories. It's always preceded by the story of Jesus calming the storm, and it's always, always followed shortly after by the story of Jesus raising a little girl from the dead. And I think the gospel writers, uh, what they mean to indicate with this order is that Jesus' authority extends to every nook and cranny of creation. He calms the storm, therefore he has authority over the natural world. He casts out the demon, therefore he has authority over the spiritual world. And then he raises a little girl from the dead, therefore he has authority over death itself. He has authority over everything. Everything is under his dominion. But again, while our enemy is defeated, he still grasps at us from his deathbed. So while the war has been won, the battle still has casualties. You understand, the, the, our resistance to sin still matters. Our witness to our neighbors still matters. Our actions still have consequences. On May 8th, 1945, the German forces made unconditional surrender to the Allied powers, effectively ending World War II in the European stage, in VE Day, and it took, it, Although that happened, it still took 119 additional days, 119 additional days for the last of the German soldiers to lay down their arms and surrender on remote Bear Island in Norway. That's two days past VJ Day, the, the, the end of World War II for the entire world. This is the reality we find ourselves in, in the body of Christ. Months after the victory was sure, people still died. This is our reality. Jesus has won the war, but the enemy has not yet laid down their arms. There are still casualties. This battle still has casualties. Listen, the devil's aim in every hardship, in every accusation, in every temptation is to batter you into submission. He wants you to stop fighting. He wants you to lay down your arms. He wants you to believe that resistance doesn't really matter because you know what? We're all gonna make it to heaven anyway in the end, right? So, so, so why does it matter if we cut corners a little bit with our holiness? There's grace, right? Yes, yes, there is grace and you still may make it to heaven in the end, but listen, there are those who still may not and they need you. They're gonna watch you and the way that you live your life, and if you live as though your actions don't matter, they're gonna assume your faith is not real. But if you live your life in such a way that displays love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, even in the midst of your hardship, then that may make them curious about the God you live that way for, and that may lead them to hope as well. We gotta, we gotta know our enemy, guys, and we gotta know what repels him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So don't quit. Don't quit. Don't lay down your arms 
when life gets hard. Evil is finite. It has a beginning and it will have an end. You understand, in Christ, we are not fighting a force that's capable of winning. Even in our struggle in Christ, you may not win today, but you cannot lose forever. So keep fighting. Because someone fought for you and someone needs you to fight for them also. Now, I'm not saying that, ev- that all suffering is the work of a demon. But it is safe to say that all human suffering, whether supernaturally imposed or simply the, the sequitur consequence of a bent creation, all suffering has its beginning in the cunning of our enemy. An enemy who tempted us to act against our own nature, against what was natural in us, and thus invite into the world and into ourselves the bending of all that was straight, the corruption of all that was immortal. And so in this way, all terrestrial evil, inward or outward, can be said to be unnatural. At best, we can only call it common. So don't give up the fight. Don't give up the fight against what has never been natural for image bearers of God. The good news is that we don't have to discern whether our hardships are the result of of evil wrought by demons or evil wrought by men because our response should always be the same, drawn near to Jesus, before whose authority both the natural and the supernatural bow low. He is the master of the chaos outside of man and the chaos inside of him as well. One last observation I want to make about this story. Sometimes I I find myself a little overwhelmed by the amount of work that there still is left to do in me, in the world, every habit I haven't conquered, every invitation I haven't issued, and the weight of it can be paralyzing. I I don't always know where to begin. My daughter recently um, destroyed her room like a tiny Tasmanian devil of cuteness, and before I would let her go outside and play, I told her she had to clean it up, and so she went upstairs to, to begin the work, and then I heard her start to cry, and I went upstairs, and I found her just collapsed like a pitiful little heap in the middle of the floor, just crying into the carpet, and I said, what's wrong, baby girl? And she said, mommy, I can't clean it up, it's too much. I said, babe, you just, you just got to start. And she goes, mommy, I can't, I can't, it's too much. And I said, okay, let's, let's just do one thing at a time. Can you pick up that book? Can you put that on the shelf? Yeah, she puts it on the shelf. And I said, okay, great, can you take that toy? Can you put it in the bin? She puts the toy in the bin. Great, can you pick up that animatronic cat that your cousins got you for Christmas? True story. Uh, and you can put that in, actually, just throw that out the window because I suspect it's possessed by the devil. Um, <laughs> pick up your clothes, put them in the hamper. She cleaned her whole room in this fashion and then she was shocked when she had finished. Sometimes when I see my sin rightly, when I see the sin of the world rightly, the sheer volume of evil seems like too much to overcome, but but Jesus demonstrates his authority over a force of superior numbers. And that is so important because here's the reality. We can all sometimes begin to think that our, that our sin is a unique snowflake of evil that no one can make up for but us. And so we impose penance on ourselves. We try to work off our debt with our good deeds. And, and, and even in that labor, become prideful and make matters worse. And we do this because we don't want to accept that Jesus could just forgive us. Not us. Not all our sin. We've, we've sinned so much and so horribly that, that we believe the, the debt has been run up past the credit limit. Listen, that is just another way of questioning the authority of Jesus Christ. 
He is outnumbered here by the thousands and yet he cast them out with a word. So never, ever, ever let yourself say your blood was not enough for my sins. Never let yourself say, no, not for me. You don't know what's in there. Listen, here's the truth. Jesus doesn't love you because he's deceived about you. He knows every vile thing that's in there, but he also knows they are no match for him. Not the evil in the world, not the evil in your heart, no matter how great the force of it is no match for Jesus Christ. I love the Matthew passage because Jesus says just one word to cast out the legion of demons. He simply says, move. And the words of the hymn I'm reminded of, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. You may have wrestled with your demons longer than you ever thought possible, but be encouraged because neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You will not be wrestling with them forever. They cannot hold you down when Jesus chooses to raise you up, even if they are clinging to your heels by the thousands, because evil is finite. It had a beginning, and its end is drawing near. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the love that you have for us that compelled you to come here to earth, to be born a helpless baby, to endure the worst of what man could do so that you could save him. Thank you that you have all things under your power, that all things come under your authority that there is nothing that we have to be afraid of because the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Lord, give us the strength to endure the testing of the enemy. Give us the strength to endure his attacks. Give us the strength to endure just the, the consequences of living in a fallen world that aren't even all that supernatural. Lord, remind us in the midst of our pain that the reason we are still suffering is because you are leaving a little bit more time, just a little bit more time for those who do not yet know you to come into your fold of grace. So in this way, Lord, let us have the honor of bearing your suffering with you so that we might make more room and more time for people to come to know your love. Lord, we're grateful, and we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.